All right, students. Welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020, Lecture 31, Introductory Lecture on Dante's Paradiso, Cantos 10 to 14, The Sphere of the Sun. We've got 30 slides to get through today. All right. We are moving from Dante's Venus, which is the last sphere inside Earth's conical shadow, and thus the last sphere marred by uh, shadow or by uh, vice, uh, into the sun, the first sphere that will take shape for us. And so recall that uh, here is an interlinear connection or an intercanticle connection between Paradiso, Purgatorio, and the Inferno. Recall that it was Canto 9, uh, which was also how old Dante was when he first saw Beatrice, in which he entered a dis, lower hell, in the Inferno, uh, where we encountered those fallen angels, as well as the Furies, as well as the threat of Medusa, and then moved through and saw some heretics. Recall also in the Purgatorio, we got uh, in Canto 9 to the gate to Purgatory proper, the actual terraces, and there had the pleasure of seeing first a drama involving two cherubim, or angels and a snake, and then a, the first of three dreams, significant dreams, by Dante, and then Dante moved through to the terraces of Purgatory. Well, now we move outside of the first three spheres of heaven that are marred by Earth's conical shadow, marred by inconsistency, marred by ambition, marred by lust, onto one of the pure spheres. And in fact, the next four spheres, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, will each take shape in a significant way. So this is the fourth of ten uh, spheres of heaven in Dante's Paradiso. Its occupants are those who illuminate and give warmth. They are teachers, scholars, theologians. These are wise people. These are prudent people. Um, and uh, they, they are more than simply teachers and scholars. These are people that are supposed to have embodied wisdom. And so we will have two speakers during the course of uh, this, these five cantos, 10, 11, and um, 13, Thomas Aquinas, and 12 by St. Uh, Bonaventure. I will occasionally call St. Thomas Aquinas Aquinas, sometimes St. Thomas um, they all refer to the same person, St. Bonaventure. I'll just call St. Bonaventure. All right. Now, the theme of this particular sphere is the theme of sharing perspective. Well, uh, you say, how? Uh, there are at least three ways to see this theme embodied. The first is this. There are two speakers in, uh, these, in this particular sphere, and they talk about each other's particular order. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican monk. You would expect him to talk about St. Dominic, the founder of his order. And yet, he talks about St. Francis, the founder of St. Bonaventure's order. Well, St. Bonaventure is a Franciscan monk. You would expect him to talk about being a Franciscan, or St. Francis of Assisi, the uh, founder of his order. And yet, he talks about St. Dominic. And so, they seem to share perspective. The second element of this, uh, uh, this idea of sharing perspective is, what is it that they are doing in order to share the information that they know? They are speaking, they are conversing, they are discussing, they are transferring information from one person to another. They are, and this is against uh, a very modern perspective that suggests that one person cannot know another, they actually hold the opposite perspective. That uh, a person can know another person if they communicate the information that they have access to intelligently. So the, more, the poorer a communicator you are, the less people will know uh, you well, the better a communicator you are, the better they will know not only yourself, but what you know as well. Um, and, hmm, yes. In any case, and also just look at the shapes themselves. Two interlocking circles. You probably have been uh, given the organizational device to use before of a Venn diagram. 
And you see that a Venn diagram are two circles that have an overlapping aspect together. Well, um, uh, the Venn diagram is interesting here because uh, here we literally have like a three-dimensional Venn diagram. But um, what is the goal of uh, conversation? Well, it is to expand that which is shared between two people, to expand that shared section so that ultimately you don't have two circles, but rather one that has enlarged both of your perspectives. And that is the purpose of conversation. Now, metaphor. Conversation and discussion, and this is similar to what I said before, expand the perspective of each participant if you're actually sharing information. This is why uh, it's often boring to talk to someone who just makes jokes or just complains about something or just insults other people or just uh, makes things up or just gives their opinions on things. That sort of information is dead because it was never really alive. It's not real information. It just tells you about the particular person you're talking to and often that they're somebody that you shouldn't really be talking to. Um, and they don't convey anything of truth to you. Well, that's quite the opposite from, say, like a lecture here and from a good um, conversation. In fact, uh, many of you have trouble with these sorts of lectures precisely because they are so information dense. There's very little uh, just uh, light opinion given your way with which you can just lightly disagree without thought. Um, what you, if you were to disagree with one of these thoughts, you would have to come up with your own thought yourself, which uh, you, I encourage you to do. In any case, as I said, this is the first sphere outside of Earth's conical shadow, and that is why we can see it clearer. Remember that um, part of one of the themes of Paradiso is that each time Dante gets bumped up another sphere, he doesn't physically move. What changes? Well, he looks at Beatrice, she becomes more beautiful, and then he looks at heaven, and it looks different. It's almost like, is heaven changing, or is Dante's perspective changing? Is his vision clearing up? Could he not see the first three heavens for what they truly were, because uh, there was something that kept him from seeing? Was, the, was Earth's conical shadow actually obscuring heaven, or was it obscuring the sight of Dante? Again, one of those sort of glaucus, is it the walk? Is he the ocean, or is he a part of the ocean sort of ideas? Is it his perception, or is it the thing itself which is changing? Or are they one and the same? Uh, difficult question. Notice also how many cantos this is. It's five. Typical for teachers. They're going to take some time to say what it is that they have to say, because they have a lot to say. So it goes through cantos 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Don't be uh, upset by the fact that 10 to 14 is five, not four, as you would expect if you just do basic arithmetic. Um, in any case... Dante's vision clears up, and he now sees these two circles very clearly. We have some direct address. You don't need to write this. Now, reader, do not leave your bench. Please don't. Uh, but stay to think on that of which you have foretaste. You will have much delight before you tire. We'll see if that's true. In any case, the first of the two speakers of this sphere. Let's tell you some things about him. His name is St. Thomas Aquinas. He speaks in cantos 10, 11, and 13. One speaker, three cantos. Again, that theme of one equally three, that arithmic. Uh, notion. Now, he was a Dominican monk or a Dominican friar. Remember, there is a distinction between monks and friars. Monks stay in monasteries. They just read books, essentially, and pray. Friars go out into the world and actually proselytize and preach. Um, he, uh, uh, as a Dominican, and I'll say more about uh, St. Dominique soon, uh, emphasized uh, the wisdom of the church, represented by the second highest choir of angels. You may know this, that uh, uh, the medieval mind and its love of categorization and its uh, love of hierarchies of being and the great chain of being even has a hierarchy of angels. There are nine choirs of angels. And the top one is seraphim, which is represented by love or the order of God. The second highest one is the cherubim. They're uh, 
They're actually represented on many cathedrals as like little babies looking like Cupid with little wings. And they represent the wisdom of God. And so love is above wisdom in the great chain of being, according to the medievals, which is very interesting. Uh, you, you will see um, God the Father here described literally as a, a, a primal love, the first love. In any case, the Dominicans, why did they come to be? Because they came about in uh, the, early, or the late 12th century, early 13th century. They fought against intellectual heresies. These were the smart friars, and they were often implanted in universities as professors in order to fight against heresies. As you know, heresies uh, sort of exist outside of Aristotle's, categor Aristotle's categorical system that uh, shaped Dante's Inferno. And we, we were saying, well, there's something interesting about her heresy. It comes from the Greek word hieresis, which means choice. Heresies are intellectual sins without being necessarily malicious sins. They are major intellectual errors make, one makes about spiritual doctrine that can, in the perception of the medieval mind, including Thomas Aquinas and Dante, lead one to uh, actually literally to hell uh, because they believe the wrong things and therefore act in the wrong way. Well, where's the best place to put somebody to shape someone's mind? In a leadership position where they teach. Where's the best place to teach somebody? A university. That's where you get... Uh, at this time, in particular, uh, the top students, the people who wish to learn uh, cerebral sorts of things. And so uh, Thomas Aquinas himself was a university professor at a uh, university that existed then, in the 14th century and the 13th century, and still exists now. It's called the University of Paris, where the Sorbonne is. Uh, one of the greatest universities in the world. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, University of Paris. Um, now, something interesting about him. He is a follower of the Dominican order, which means the founder of his order from the 12th century, born in the 12th century, was, uh, 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 was St. Dominique. You would expect him then to talk about what he knows, which is how to fight intellectual heresies, the history of the Dominican order, any of a number of things. And yet he upsets our expectation, and he talks about the life of St. Francis. St. Francis started a totally different order of monks and friars named the Franciscans who took a vow of poverty and were by no means an intellectual branch of the uh, Christian monastic arm. So what is it that, uh, uh, that Dante is trying to convey to us about what a true teacher is by having this man talk about what he did not experience in his life and what he did not truly know? Perhaps he's trying to say something like, the true power of a teacher is to learn the perspective of another rather than to simply represent one's own perspective over and over and over. Uh, unlike saying, I see what you're saying, but this is what I have to say. It's like, I see what you're saying, and this is what you said, and repeating it back. In any case, let's keep moving on. So he does make the point here, and we see that monastic orders have the same sorts of problems as secular orders do. The Franciscans who, uh, like St. Francis, marry poverty, and we'll have a quote from that in, in a moment. They, like the Florentines, have fallen short of their founders' ideals. And so another thing that I want to mention to you here, and this is something that you see not only in monastic orders during Dante's time, not only in political orders during Dante's time, but even currently. Uh, I recently read a book called Extreme Ownership by uh, two Navy SEALs, uh, two Navy SEAL officers, Jago Winlink and uh, Leif Babin. And one thing they talked about is that in the military, sometimes 
even when you have the same strategic goals, like take a city in Iraq called Ramadi, uh, different divisions will have uh, different sub-goals, which make them antagonistic towards each other. So you could be a Navy SEAL operating on the ground, and there could be a sniper unit with the Army, and you could have uh, reinforcements uh, given to you by the Marines. You could be on different comm systems, and uh, you could end up having different operating procedures uh, that uh, make you accidentally uh, get in each other's way and potentially even fire on each other, uh, uh, blue on blue, as it's called. In any case, uh, in corporations to this date, sometimes differing divisions have differing perspectives on how to move the business forward. You focus on your particular part of, part of the business, and someone else focuses on their part of the business, and you can become antagonistic towards each other. So just because you know how to do what you do does not mean that you're actually helping a larger organization. Uh, add that to Thomas Aquinas here. Just because he knows about heresies, just because he knows about the Dominicans, does that actually make him a good Christian? Does that mean that he's actually helping uh, uh, the great Christian mission, even if he's accomplishing his particular one? Uh, something that I thought I'd bring up to you. All right, a couple more uh, details just to know. Now, each of these speakers, Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, uh, they exist on one of the two circles which are overlapping like the Venn diagrams in the sun. On each of these circles, and I'm not going to repeat them to you here, you can look them up very easily in, in the front of the book, page 432, or, or just in uh, the cantos themselves, uh, there are 12 total men on each of these circles, which makes for 24 total. Now that 24 number is uh, symbolic, very crucial. There are 24 books of the Old Testament. There were 24 old men at the front of the pageant of the, um, uh, uh, how do you say, parade at the top of uh, terrestrial paradise. And so it is as if, as if these figures themselves embody all the wisdom of the Old Testament, or all the wisdom, in some ways, of the Bible. Perhaps. Perhaps they do. In any case, a couple small details about St. Dominique and St. Francis of Assisi. Even though they are spoken of here, there's not a lot that you really need to know about them, except for the fact that the two men that embody the virtues of their monastic orders happen to be able to look beyond their singular perspectives. A Franciscan understands the Dominicans, that's St. Bonaventure, and a Dominican understands the, uh, the Franciscans, and uh, that's St. Thomas Quince. And I'll, I'll give a more personal example, maybe just to help you out. Obviously, we are a charter school in Escondido. There's another charter school in Escondido. What is it called? Classical. Classical Academy. And so often when we play them in basketball or football, we would like to do what to their team? We'd like to crush them. Absolutely. And it's like we're sort of irritating, sort of sad and disappointed when we don't. That said, recently, and this is where this is a little bit sad, they experienced a major tragedy over at Classical Academy. In fact, there was a terrible car crash over Christmas break, and one of their students died, and multiple of their students were injured. Now, this is where uh, we make the connection. Do we still want to just crush Classical Academy, or do we take a larger perspective? Do we realize that they too are from Escondido, like we are? They too are a charter school with similar values and ideals to us, and they too, bless you, are people like us. Those divisions that divide us, all of a sudden, in the wake of a greater tragedy, seem to fall away. Seem to fall away. It's the same idea when, say, you're a Marine. You're in the Navy as a SEAL. You're in the Army. You all have to take uh, Iraq or Ramadi back from these particular uh, uh, insurgents who do some terrible things that we're not allowed to do, by the way, including torture um, and uh, you know, abducting of women, that sort of thing that the West is not 
uh, they're gone. But in any case, in the wake of a larger enemy, it brings people together. And so that is uh, part of what Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure are trying to show us. They don't just represent what it is they see in their particular functions. They get the big picture, as it were. All right, so St. Dominic, he founded the Dominican Order. He was born in 1170. He died in 1221. That's the same year that Bonaventure was born. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was born a little bit after that in either 1224 or 1225. St. Francis of Assisi, who was an Italian, knows that Dominic was a, Sp a Spaniard from Calarruega, Spain. He was a Castilian. Uh, he was born 1182 and died 1226. Born in Assisi, Italy. At that time, it wasn't called Italy, but it was the Italian peninsula. All right. That son. This is a description by uh, Thomas Aquinas of St. Francis. That son was not yet very distant from his rising, when he caused the earth to take some comfort from his mighty influence, referencing the spirit self, the son. For even as a youth, he ran to war against his father on behalf of her, the lady unto whom, just as to death, none willingly unlocks the door. Before his spiritual court at Coram Patre, that means in the presence of the Father, he wed her. Day by day he loved her more. And so it sounds like he's describing a beautiful lady that he married. And yet, uh, this beautiful lady, like fortune, will be an embodied idea, not an actual person. She was bereft of her first husband, scorned, that's the church, because she is uh, poverty, obscure for some 1,100 years. Until that son came, she had no suitor. So Jesus dies, 1,100 years pass. St. Francis is born, and he uh, marries this uh, widowed or divorced lady who is actually capital P poverty. Nor did it help her when men heard that he who made earth tremble found her unafraid, serene with Amiclus when he was addressed her. Nor did her constancy encourage help when she, even when Mary stayed below, suffered with Christ upon the cross. But so that I not tell my tale too darkly, too obscurely, we are past the uh, conical shadow of the earth, you may now take Francis and take poverty to be the lover's mint in my recounting. So he actually analyzes it for us. It says that uh, Francis married poverty. That means that each of these men takes a vow of poverty. And actually, something about the Franciscans is that um, their habits, the, uh, the monk outfits that they wear, the sort of robes, they're known to be very itchy. They're made of wool. I don't know if you've ever worn a wool sweater. It's awful how itchy it is. Like, I'd rather be cold. It's so itchy to wear one of those things. And so not only is it cheap and... Uh, 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 not very nice, but it, it's also very uncomfortable to be in, which I suppose is sort of a symbol for when you are impoverished, things are very uncomfortable because you are very vulnerable and subject to fate and those around you. In any case, even though St. Thomas talks about St. Francis and the Franciscans, I want to give you a little info on him. He was the greatest philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages. Um, and at one point, he was actually uh, antagonistic against St. Bonaventure, and I believe it was within 50 years of that his death, that several of his works are actually put on the, uh, the uh, codex of banned works by Catholics for some, uh, for some crazy reason. In any case, his greatest work was called the Summa Theologiae. That means the height of theology or the highest of theology. A summit is the top of a mountain, for example. And that's why when like, leaders like CEOs and politicians get together, they call it a summit because it's all the top people in an organization getting together. In any case... Uh, he was, his dates are 1225 to 1274, so notice he died uh, just after, let me make sure I get this right, just after uh, St. Dominique died and just before St. Francis died. And just to let you know what this guy spent his time doing, uh, he wrote 18 volumes of work. You're like, how much is in a volume? Well, 
In those 18 volumes, 20, over 20,000 pages written. And that's by hand. He didn't have a computer. Uh, he, may, he may also have dictated some. Often pictures show him he was a rather heavy-set individual with his eyes sort of uh, off-center with each other. He's often shown as having uh, like a pen, a quill in one hand, and the church in another. Uh, with a halo on the back of his head because he's a saint. Alright, in any case. St. Bonaventure, just to give you some additional perspective, his dates 1221 to 1274, speaks in Canto 12. Know that he doesn't speak in 10, 11, and 13. He was a Franciscan monk. And uh, the Franciscans, like I told you, they take a vow of poverty. Uh, and uh, I just want you to think a little bit about how different a Franciscan's life would be from a Dominican's. They're both monks. So we as modern people are like, they're both monks. They just hang out in churches and pray. It's like, no, no, not exactly. These, uh, these different divisions are like, uh, they're as different from each other as uh, divisions in the military. If you are, say, a fighter pilot for the Navy and have gone through the Top Gun program, you have very different existence than a boasting man in the Navy, which is the guy who swabs the decks of, uh, uh, of naval cruisers. And that's even within the same uh, branch of the military. Very different if you happen to be in the Coast Guard, or you happen to be an Army Ranger, or you happen to be uh, an Air Force traffic controller, or something like that. In any case, these Franciscans took a vow of poverty and go out and flaunt their poverty and beg people with their days, whereas the Dominicans had cushy sort of uh, university professorships. And so their lives were very, very different from each other. Uh, like I said earlier, um, the Dominicans represent the wisdom of God, or uh, the second choir of angels called cherubim. The Franciscans represent the love of God, which is uh, the attribute that is ascribed to the highest choir of angels called the seraphim. Seraphim, just to give you a description of them if you've never heard of them, they are known to have six, or they're said to have six wings, two that cover their eyes, two that cover uh, their groins, and two that cover their feet. I think the idea is that they're not as humanoid as the others. They represent something more than that which is human, and those are sort of human features. Your feet, your eyes, and they don't really need reproductive organs because they're immortal. In any case, uh, St. Bonaventure, like St. Thomas Aquinas, speaks about his opposing order of friars. He does not speak about his own Franciscans. He speaks about St. Dominique, the founder of the Dominican order of monks. All right. Here's St. Bonaventure speaking about St. Dominic. And to begin, the love that makes me fair draws me to speak about the other leader, because of whom my own was so praised here. And so he says, oh, I totally understand the perspective that Thomas Aquinas gave, because it's my perspective. Let me show you my ability as an educator to represent his perspective correctly. I'll tell you one interesting thing about conflict management. One of the best things, and your own headmaster uses this technique and has uh, illustrated its usefulness, is when somebody in an argument says something to you, do not simply judge it or change it, make a straw man out of it. Represent it back to them. Repeat it back to them, what it is that they said. And do your best possible job to make what they said stronger, or at least accurate, not weaker. You'll notice that your natural tendency is to straw man what someone says. They say, uh, under no condition will I ever uh, move my car from behind you. Uh, you might say, uh, I, I can't do this right now, I can't think of it off the top of my head. But you might make their position much weaker. Or, hmm, if I can think of an actual example from my life, uh, I'll think about it. Uh, or, yes, no, so if you were like saying something I said, Mr. Schmidt said that it is unintelligent for you not to take the perspective of someone else. You might say, Mr. Schmidt said I'm stupid. It's like, uh, no, no, that's not what I said. 
And that's not a very good way of, uh, of representing what someone else says either. You'll notice that when you get into a fight next time, with, it, should you ever get into a fight with somebody verbally, probably in the next uh, hour or two, um, that, that is your tendency because you want to win. You don't necessarily want to learn. See if you can uh, fight against that tendency. Even today, even today, in any case. Where one is, it is right to introduce the other. Side by side they fought. So may they share in glory and together gleam. He's talking about St. Francis and Dominic. Christ's army, whose rearming cost so dearly, was slow, uncertain of itself, and scanty behind its ensign, when the emperor, and I, I, I just, uh, I'll go on with that later. So, St. Dominic. Let's say some, a couple things about him. We've talked a little bit about St. Francis. We've talked a little bit about St. Thomas Aquinas. We've talked a little bit about St. Bonaventure. Let's talk a little bit about who St. Bonaventure talks about. He talks about St. Dominic, who was so holy that he caused his mother to have uh, uh, premoni- dreams of premonition, dreams of what was to come, dreams of his life to come. So while he was in the womb, she had dreams about him and what he would be. Well, he took up arms against the erring world. Well, took up arms, that means he was a fighter. He was a warrior in some way. He wasn't a physical warrior. He was an intellectual warrior. And what do intellectual warriors, particularly Christians, fight against? As we know from Canto 10 of the Inferno, they fight against heresies, which are intellectual sins, yet in some way not malicious. And his people, just like the Florentines, just like the Franciscans, have gone crooked. Crooked is interesting because it uh, suggests uh, an inability uh, to have a straight or a correct perspective. So if uh, you are an intellectual warrior, what is the most important thing for you to have? Clarity of sight. You need to be able to see things clearly. You can't see things right. How can you fight what's wrong if you yourself have an incorrect perspective? And uh, I am the life of Saint or of Bonaventure. And I think it's so interesting that what uh, both Bonaventure and Aquinas say is they don't say I am the the spirit of. I'm I'm not the words of. They say I am the life of. As if what we're supposed to learn from these men is not what they wrote, but what they did. We're supposed to learn from their lives, their actions, uh, their examples rather than simply uh, their articulations, which is very interesting because what do they spend their lives doing? Well, Thomas Aquinas spent his life with words, with writing, and yet he's saying you should learn from someone's actions. In any case, this is a a description of St. Dominic. Within its walls was born the loving vassal of Christian faith, the holy athlete, one kind to his own and harsh to his enemies. You notice that's a little bit different up here in heaven. No sooner was his mind created... And it was so full of living force that it still in his mother's womb made her prophetic. Then at the sacred font where faith and he brought mutual salvation as their dowry, the rights of their espousal were completed. So just as um, St. Francis married poverty, so does St. Dominic marry faith. Uh, very beautiful wives, you might say. Uh, very, <laughs> very loyal. The lady who had given the assent brought for him Saul in a dream, that's his mother, astonishing fruit that would spring from him and from his heir. So she could see that good things were coming from this guy and from the people who came after him. Then he, we jump a little forward, with both his learning and his zeal, his eagerness, and with his apostolic office like a torrent hurtled from a mountain source, coursed, and his impetus with greatest force struck where the thickets of the heretics offered the most resistance that's in the universities, where the thinkers are. And from him there sprang the streams with which the Catholic garden has found abundant watering so that saplings have more life, more green. Great. All right. The marvelous life 
of the poor man of God, transitioning to Francis here, broke the silence of those concordant powers. This is from Canto 13. I just jump, I've jumped around a little. Now, so I'm just asking this question here. You don't actually have to write this. And I, I said this earlier. Do we learn from the life or the lives of Bonaventure and then of Francis and from Aquinas and from uh, Dominique because a story using language about a person is supposed to be representative of who they were and how one might mimic them. Is the suggestion that the life rather than the words of a thinker are more valuable? What's the most valuable source of information that exists? Books, conversation, words, or the actions of those around you? What is, what cannot be, uh, I suppose, if words can be untrue or lies or false, can actions be untrue or lies or false? Which I suppose is a, an even more interesting question with the fact that there are, of course, people whose profession is actual, who act like people that they are not. And that's sort of a question I want you to ponder on. In any case, uh, here's the major question that we have to solve in the next five minutes or so. This is the question that, uh, this is the big question from the sun. Now, in Canto 13, Thomas Aquinas uh, starts talking again. So we talk uh, about St. Francis and the Franciscans and the first couple cantos, 10-11, and then Bonaventure had a chance to talk about St. Dominic and the Dominicans and share his perspective on things. And then we get into this question. Uh, uh, there's something that Aquinas had said where he talks about Solomon. And when he describes him, he's described as the fifth light out of 12 on St. Thomas Aquinas' circle, uh, his particular circle, which is a part of this sphere. Um, <laughs> and um, he made the claim that Solomon was perfect. And so we as modern people are like, okay, uh, you said somebody's perfect, that's not that big a deal. Well, that is sort of a big deal uh, when you're talking to a Dominican friar who fought against heresies. It sounds as if he himself is saying something heretical because there were only two men ever created totally perfect in the Hebrew and Christian tradition uh, and uh, only two in the Christian tradition. One is Adam, who was directly created by God. He has no mother. And one was Christ, who, though he did have a mo mother, was uh, had the angel Gabriel go down and meet um, Mary, and she gave birth uh, parthenogenically, which means uh, it's a virgin birth. In any case, you think that any light which human nature can rightfully possess was all infused by that force which had shaped both of these two, Adam and Christ. So how is it that this Solomon, if he was born by a woman, could be perfect? Isn't that a heretical thing to say if only ever Adam and Christ were perfect? The one out of whose chest was drawn the rib, Adam, from which was formed the lovely cheek, Eve, whose palate was then to prove so costly to the world, original sin, eating of the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and one whose chest was transfixed by the lance, Jesus, you may know, on the cross he was pierced by a lance, either called the lance of Longinus, or the spear of destiny, um, out from which his blood came, which supposedly was put into a cup. That cup is what we call the grail, the San Grail, which is what the uh, uh, medieval uh, uh, knights of King Arthur's court were always searching for, the grail. Um, in any case, who satisfied all past and future sins, that's through his own charitable death, we talked about that in the sphere of Mercury, outweighing them upon the scales of justice. Therefore you wondered at my words when I before said that no other ever vied with that great soul enclosed in the fifth light, as Solomon. So how is he as perfect? as these two creatures made directly by God. And this is going to get uh, sort of uh, complicated quickly. So let's take these notes very quickly, and I'll reiterate them before we get into it. God directly made two beings, 
according to Christian theology, which is represented here by Aquinas and uh, re-represented by Dante. Adam and Christ, neither was born entirely naturally. Adam was created directly, and from him Eve was created, and it was because of their choices that they lost the presence of the divine. Christ was infused into Mary during the Annunciation by means of Parthenogenesis. Uh, the idea is not like with Zeus and so many mortals that God the Father lay with Mary. The idea is that uh, uh, Gabriel, Gabriel came down and said, you're going to bear a God, and then she was pregnant. And that, that's the story. Eve is the one whose palate was then to prove so costly to the world. She was the first one to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, of course, Adam follows suit uh, and then blames her for it. <laughs> Jesus was impaled on the cross by the spear of Longinus, also called the uh, spear of destiny. And the fifth light described by Aquinas was, of course, Solomon. Solomon, uh, who wrote the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, books of wisdom, and was considered extremely wise. Uh, but one additional note I, I would be remiss if I, I didn't give is that he also supposedly had, um, I might get, uh, I won't get the numbers wrong, but I'll get which one is which wrong. He had 300 concubines and 700 wives. Or 300 wives and 700 concubines. He was, uh, uh, by some accounts, a fairly uh, lustful individual. And yet, quite the wise one, in any case. How is it that he could be as perfect as uh, Adam and Christ? Well, let's see what Thomas Aquinas says here. He is uh, supposed to be a university professor, so he should say something uh, intelligent to squirm out of this difficulty. Both that which never dies and that which dies are only the reflected light of that idea which our sire with love begets. So he's saying the spheres of heavens, which are immortal, and also the things down on earth all come from God in some way. Because of the living light, God, that pours out so from its bright source that it does not disjoin, and see all this light imagery in the sun, from it or from the love entrined within them. Entrined means enthreed. It's a clever uh, neologism of the Dante neologism. is a new word made up to convey a new concept through its own goodness, gathers up its rays within nine essences, those are the nine spheres of heaven after the Empyrean, as in a mirror, itself eternally remaining one. So he's saying that the entirety of the universe is a reflection of the will and intelligence of God. Cool. From there, from act to act, light then descends down to the last potentialities where it is such that it engenders nothing but brief contingent things. So all the light of the divine goes down through the spheres of heavens and down unto earth, where there are contingent things, physical things, things that come to be and pass away. Us, plants, dogs, uh, all that sort of thing. By which I mean the generated things, that's us. The moving heavens bring into being with or without seed. <coughs> the wax of such things, the bodies, the physical uh, matter of them, us, or, or our bodies, our flesh, and what shapes that wax are not immutable. That means they are not unchangeable. And thus beneath the idea stamp, light shines through more or less. So he's saying that uh, the reason why everything isn't perfect down on the earth is that some of us have imperfect bodies. And because of our imperfect bodies, even if a perfect creator were to make perfect souls within us, that we would not be perfect because uh, we're subject to the weaknesses and frailties of uh, our flesh. Um, what the old cliche, it's a cliche expression now, but is it the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In any case, thus it can be that in the self-same species, think of humans, think of dogs, think of roses, some trees bear better fruit, and some bear worse. And that's what allows for human choice, obviously, here. And men are born with different temperaments. For were the wax appropriately readied, if we had perfect bodies, which is supposedly what happens after the resurrection, and were the heaven's power at its height, the brightness of the seal would show completely. However, but nature always works effectively. And I love, 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 love this simile. She passes on that light 
much like an artist who knows his craft but has a hand that trembles. So I, I am, uh, <clears throat> let's say I'm one of the heavenly intelligences, and I've got a perfect idea of circle. But I have to make the circle in this contingent place. So what's going to make my circle imperfect? The fact that my hand what? So my idea is perfect, but the flesh is weak. And I think you sort of uh, have small examples of that when you write as a young person, when you first uh, play a sport as a young person, when you first draw. You have like a beautiful idea in your head, right? And then you try and draw it. Say you have a Ninja Turtle in your head. And you try and draw the Ninja Turtle. And then, unfortunately for the people who aren't watching this, this is how your Ninja Turtle comes out. And this is, this is going to be pretty good for me, too. And he's got, he's got his shell here. I'll just narrate it. He's got his front. They don't wear clothes, but I would. There he's got his hands. He's a, uh, oh yeah, we'll make him, we'll make him the Ninja Turtle you probably didn't want me to draw. This is not Leonardo. Which one is this with the staff? Donatello. It's Donatello, the guy with the purple one, the one that probably none of you ever wanted to be. You were probably like, I want to be Leonardo because he has a sword and he's a leader. I want to be Raphael because he's cool and has a size. I want to be Michelangelo because he seems pretty fun. You probably never wanted to be Donatello. Well, we are amongst the, the wise ones. And uh, the staff does have the longest range against any of them would be the most effective. Uh, even somebody with a sword, uh, they'd have to chop up your staff pretty fast in order to get past that range of motion. In any case, I had the idea of a beautiful Ninja Turtle. That's what I drew. Sorry, nature's defective. That's why we're kind of defective. Um, and which is also an argument for why evil exists uh, in some ways and also for why humans die. Um, uh, 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 our physical matter is not meant to stay the same always. It's always changing. And uh, even... Even a scientist will tell you, I don't know that this is, whether this is a wives' tale or true, but supposedly every cell in your body will have died and been duplicated and replaced by a new one over seven years. So in seven years, you will be literally, uh, literally, literally a different person in terms of your cellular composition. Huh, in any case. All right, yet where the ardent love prepares is the last bit. And stamps the lucid vision of the primal power, a being then acquires complete perfection. Okay, okay, interesting so there is a way for someone to be completely perfect um, if uh, they're made directly by God. That's Adam and Christ. In that way, earth was once made worthy of a full perfection of a living being that thus was the virgin made to be with child. Okay, Christ was directly made by God is the idea here. And that's why nature didn't get in the way and make him imperfect like all of us. So that I do approve of the opinion you hold that na human nature never was, nor shall be what it was in those two persons. So he's actually agreeing. He's saying, okay, when I said Solomon was perfect, I didn't mean perfect in the same way that a creature made directly by God would be like Adam or uh, Christ. But so that the obscure can be made plain. Do I even want to read this? I will read this. Okay. But so that the obscure can be made plain, consider who he was. What was the cause of his request when he was told do ask? My words did not prevent your seeing clearly that it was as a king that he had asked for wisdom that would serve his royal test. So there's a, uh, there's a proviso given here that uh, Solomon was not perfect as a being. He was perfect in his role. He was perfect as a king. He was precisely perfect because he didn't deal with uh, foolish intellectual issues like many medieval people did, like, and not to know the number of the angels on high. So that's like sort of a theological question. How many angels are there? Like, who knows? Who knows that? Nobody. Uh, if combined with a contingent, necessary, necessary, 
ever can produce necessity. So can something contingent ever make something necessary? That's a logical paradox for people who are logicians. Or CS dare prima mote motum esse, or uh, that means uh, if, if there is to, to give, uh, if there is a, a first mover is the idea behind that. Or within a semicircle, one can draw a triangle with no right angle. That's a good question to terrorize your math professors with. Can you make a, can you inscribe a triangle within a circle without there being a right angle? They'll probably just say no. All right. <clears throat> Thus, if you know both what I said and say by matchless vision, it is kingly prudence. My arrow of intention means to strike. And if you turn clear eyes to that word rose, you'll see that it referred to kings alone. Kings who are many and the good are rare. So finally, a good king, a good leader. Take what I said with this distinction then. In that way, it accords with what you thought of the first father and of our beloved. All right. Uh, I will show this to you later, the slides that came after. But you are in a good position to answer what you must. Good work today. I hope it's been illuminating.